Hey, Goal Achievers, welcome to the Elite Achievement Community. I'm Kristen Burke, your host and coach here to demystify the goal achievement process. If you are ambitious and visionary, then let's get to work so you can maximize your potential and achieve your definition of success. Hey, Goal Achievers, welcome back to Elite Achievement. Today's guest quit her job as a photo editor at Elle magazine in Germany to find an adventure and exclaims she has not had a boring day since. As a first-generation immigrant, she got herself out of $135,000 of debt by bootstrapping her passion for photography into a successful global business that she eventually sold to Bill Gates in a multi-million dollar deal. Biette Chalette is the growth architect and founder of The Women's Code, a strategic business and balanced leadership development company. She has been named one of the 50 must-follow women entrepreneurs by HuffPost. She is also the author of the number one international award-winning Amazon bestseller, Happy Woman, Happy World, How to Go from Overwhelmed to Awesome. I'm very excited to explore that topic. Biette does strategic planning for companies like Amazon and Reckitt, the makers of Lysol. I met Biette at a learning day back in November and couldn't wait to connect with her on this podcast. She is an expert on scaling, creating equal and inclusive work environments, and turning chaos into clarity. Welcome, Biette. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us more about your photography business that you turned into a multi-million dollar deal with Bill Gates. Yes. So I want to start with the idea that the career aptitude counselor said to me that I should have been a roofer because I liked to be outside. I didn't mind carrying and schlepping gear and I was not afraid of heights. So there was this moment when I was a photographer and I'm on top of a glacier in Switzerland And I'm thinking to myself, I'm definitely outside, I'm definitely schlepping, and it's a good thing that I'm not afraid of heights. Um, So the aptitude test was right. The interpretation of the aptitude (laughs) test was completely wrong. So I say this ahead of time because uh, oftentimes our skill sets in life are misinterpreted by people that mean really well, that don't understand what we are all about. Photography has been a passion of mine for a very long time because I believe that Telling a story in a single image is a very powerful tool and a skill very few people possess. But I found that I am much better at the business behind the art. And I realized that when you're young and you don't really have a determined point of view yet, so it takes time to hone that. And because the business was so easy for me, I then went from photography into becoming a photo editor. I was a photography representative after I had immigrated into the United States, and I ran a photography production business. And then what happened, all the stuff that you read about that happens to other people all happened to me. I lost um, half of my business in a lawsuit against uh, a former employee who had a brilliant idea for her own business, which was my business without me, with my key vendor, no less. I end up in this massive lawsuit, and I lost my production business six months later in September 11th, like another half a million in 24 hours. And I ended up being $135,000 in debt and having 
no place to go. I had to borrow money to pay interest on borrowed money, which as everybody knows is I think known as a financial death spiral or something like that. And so I'm here and I had this idea that interestingly enough, or as a as a as a joke of the universe, I guess, uh, was brought to me by the by the people that had betrayed me that I wanted to go into stock photography syndication and as a specialty was architecture and interior photography. And this was at a time when nobody talked about 600 count threat bedsheets. It was just all just starting this whole trend about living well and decorating your place. I had this idea, but I had no money. So I had to figure out how I was going to invest into building this business with having had no money. And then luckily the lawsuit did settle. When I paid everything, I started with zero. I mean, literally, I think there was $5 in my bank account after I paid the lawyer, after I paid my debt, all of this, this big battle for a year was worth $5 in the end. So I had to start and I went into debt again. Now I'm $135,000 in debt again for the second time. And I have to figure out how the heck am I going to get myself out of this crazy mess? And in all of this, I fly to Germany to drum up some business. My father has a car accident. We thought he had a stroke. He didn't have a stroke. He had pancreatic cancer and he dies within six weeks. So while we're at the funeral, I get a phone call from my office in Los Angeles and it's my landlord. And now we've been served the notice. So now we have to vacate uh, the house. So in all of this, I fell on my knees and I raised my fist against God and I, I yelled at God for two minutes. And I said to him, if you have a plan, this would be a really excellent time to fill me in. Thank you very much. And then you surrender. What else are you going to do? You just have to surrender. And so I came back. It couldn't have been worse. I'm preparing for bankruptcy. And then a letter from the White House comes. In my desperation, I had written a letter to the White House, to the President of the United States, and I said, you need to help me. And I only wrote a letter to the White House because my former mother-in-law just would not shut up about it. Write a letter to the President. You see a President too. That's what the President is for. The President is here to help you. I'm like, fine, fine, fine. I'm going to write a letter to the President. I will tell you a funny side story. You know, I've told this story many, many times. Hundreds of people since have written letters to the president of the United States as a result of it, because I did get a letter from the White House. And in that letter, it put me in touch with the Small Business Administration. And I had written a business plan. And they helped me to make sure that my financials were in order, found me a bank that restructured my, my debt in a fixed 10-year loan that freed up my line of credit. That gave me the cash I needed to make it through three months. This is how close it was, three months to get to break even. And then 18 months later, I'm the world leader in my category. And the category was celebrity at home stories. While I did not invent the celebrity at home story, but because I was a photo editor for Elle magazine and I used to buy these stories, of course I knew how to sell them. And so we sold Madonna, Francis Ford Coppola, Simon Baker, Julian Moore, uh, Terry Hatcher. And that's how a Bill Gates company came knocking on my door and says, can you tell me how you do it? And I said, like any decent woman, I said, you want what I have, you have to pay for it. 
And then they asked me how much, and I named a multi-million dollar amount, and they said, fine. And that's how I got to sell my business to Bill Gates. Unbelievable. (laughs) A story of overcoming adversity and not stopping and bouncing back. How did you keep your mindset strong through all of that? You know, they're, 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 they're really two things. Number one, I decided that I was not going to drown in a puddle, right? Because, Kristen, it's not worth drowning in a puddle. If you drown, you drown in the ocean. At least it's a better story. And I learned that I had to be very precise on how much time I was going to allocate to worrying about things that I could not change in that moment. I worried about money when I had to pay bills. And the minute I was done paying the bills, no matter how bad it was and what other crazy thing I had to do to make that work, and then I forgot about it until I had to pay bills again, because otherwise I would have driven myself crazy. And I think that's what a lot of people misunderstand is that we need to be clear that these moments of opportunity, the stretching yourself beyond what you think you're humanly capable of, is God, spirit, universe, opportunity stretching you because you need to step into what you're here to do. How do people learn what it is that they're here to do? Well, I think if anybody could have a one-sentence answer, that person probably would be rich by now. I, I, I think that a lot of it is that we have to think about when we are growing up, we are being taught that we have to learn existing information, regurgitate it, and then we get an A. And then we go to college and we learn existing information, we regurgitate it, and we get an A. And so we give preferential treatment to people that know how to regurgitate and re- retain information that already exists. And then we wonder why we don't have innovation. And then you go into an organization or become an entrepreneur on your own. And then suddenly it's like, what's your viewpoint? And you go like, what do you mean, what's my viewpoint? Nobody's ever even asked me about my viewpoint. My viewpoint always had to align with what the viewpoint was of the person that gave me the test. And that's the criteria. So in order to find out what you are or who you are, what you're here for, you want to step into this piece of what do I enjoy? What brings me great joy? And leave that safety and security thinking that we are raised at because we retain, regurgitate, and repeat information and leave that behind and say, well, if somebody's done this before me, it must be possible. If it is possible, then it must be possible for me. So then the question is, how do I make it possible for me? And a lot of people get caught up in the, I don't know, I'm not sure. The sky will not open. The hand of God will not reach out with a piece of paper that says, hey, Kristen, you're very good at X. Why don't you become such and such? That's the power of free choice. But what does happen is these opportunities are in front of you. And it's your job to recognize it. But we like to think that opportunities have to be presented on a silver platter with a glass of champagne, caviar on the side. Opportunities are almost always presented as challenges. And then you go, oh, no, that's too hard. I can't do that. 
well, there you go. You just blew it. I think that's what's so misunderstood about figuring out what you're good at. You mislabel the opportunity that shows up as a challenge, as a problem, not as an opportunity in disguise. And I've learned as I've been growing my business, the more that I lean into opportunities or those ideas that pop into your mind at random times and you want to dismiss them, but then something keeps nagging at you and you're like, fine, I'll do it. Those tend to lead to really incredible business opportunities. So learning to lean into that intuition has been really helpful for me. Yes, you're absolutely correct. Um, And intuition is a really important part that often is misunderstood, especially in an environment where there's middle-class thinking prevalent. And middle-class thinking is all about, um, here is something that you can do now for the rest of your life, and then you die. And when I say it like that, it's hardly a sexy uh, value proposition because it sounds absolutely dreadful. But how many people do we know that say, well, you know, it's a job. I'm good at it. I make money. Um, But they don't really fulfill their passion. And then they are driven by when they can get away from having to do something that is not meaningful to them. And I think the best part about entrepreneurship and why we are talking is because we love what we do so much that we prefer to work 60 hours so we don't have to work 40. My husband will tell me that I work more now than I did when I was in corporate. And quite frankly, sometimes it doesn't even feel like work. I'm in the flow and I'm loving what I'm doing and helping make an impact. So it's really funny. We work 60 hours so we don't have to work 40. 100%. Are you enjoying this episode and feeling encouraged to take the next step towards maximizing your potential? Don't let that energy pass you by. Goal achievers consistently take action to achieve great success. Grab your free breakout plan right now at kristenburke.com to begin your journey today. Tell us more about your work as a growth architect. What do you do as a growth architect? So the way my brain works is that I have a very structure and process-oriented way of thinking. Maybe it's the German engineering. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that's just innate to me. When I hear something, I can't help it. It's just like, blah, you know, I have to immediately, it's, it's, it's just like coming out. It's like, oh, that's so easy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I mean, just follow these steps. And everybody looks at me and says, how'd you do that? I'm like, did what? A growth plan or a strategic plan or a journey map is a reverse engineering process of a desired outcome. So people that are in the entrepreneur organization in the accelerators, for example, know they need to get to a million dollars to be full members in the entrepreneur organization. So we have a goal. The goal is $1 million. Now, as a strategist and as a growth planner, I go in and I say, Kristen, are you impact or money driven? Mm, that's a good question. And it really depends on the day. Exactly. So is it easier to say a million dollars or impacting 10,000 people? Impacting 10,000 people. So then that now in the reverse engineering, we now already adjusting the language and the unapologetic value proposition, the branding statement to reflect that. Because 
even though that money is ultimately the goal or the target or the marker to reach a certain goal, but if it's easier for you to say 10,000 people, because if you serve 10,000 people, let's face it, you can get to a million dollars, right? Then the question isn't how do I get to a million dollars? And the question is how do I get to impact 10,000 people? And now our growth plan, our strategy then is, well, we would say, how many people are you impacting right now? So if you're impacting this many people right now, what is your revenue? And then if we were to impact 10,000 people, what would be your revenue if we follow this current model? Then you're going to realize that it is absolutely impossible for you as an individual person to service 10,000 people. Yeah, I mean, it's just ludicrous, right? So then we say, well, what are the options to serve 10,000 people? Well, now we go from the one to many piece. We're adding bench members. We are doing sort of a franchise. Can we train the trainer? Do you have a method? Do we have to develop the method? So there's a very logical approach to how we go through the step by step by step by step. So for the consultants and coaches that I work with, almost always it is that they don't have a system. And because they don't have a system that has a clear definition of when somebody comes in to when somebody leaves, what are the six, five, four things that they're going to need to learn in the journey? So most consultants want to, I call this a vomit, the entire solution on their poor clients all at once and say, it's going to be a one-year engagement and this and this. And then the client freaks out and runs because it's too much. But if I say, well, here's my system that I've created. And in my world, I developed the five-star success blueprint. And so with a system, I can say, in the first step, we're looking at your idea. Is your idea good? Who is this idea for? Who wants this idea? And is this idea needed? And why are you the right person to do this? In the second step, we then go and say, well, now we're building the offer. How do we build the offer so it's appealing to the people that want to buy it? And what are we solving? Are we really solving this? Then we go into now we're building the processes and the systems. Then we go into who do we need on our team, the team building piece. And then we go and we look at you as a leader. What do you need to know, do, have, be to lead your entire team or to get to that goal? So as a consultant, as a coach, if you have a system like that, now it's much easier to sell because the strategy, the growth plan we just designed is, well, let's start with the first step. The first step is a workshop, a coaching session a group session, whatever. And then we design what we need, how we need to offer that and the journey map. And once you have that, you're going to need a couple of months to implement all of that. Then you come back for the second step. So it allows you to sell more often and more consistently. And you bring people on a journey with you that has a predetermined, guaranteed outcome. That's why I consider myself more consultant than a coach, because I think I'm better at telling people what to do versus helping them figure it out on their own. I mean, let's just be real here. You mentioned you've trained tens of thousands of entrepreneurs. What are some of the big mistakes you have seen entrepreneurs make as they scale and grow their business? I think most of it is that most entrepreneurs are thinking that doing a, a incremental growth plan is the sensible thing to do. When we are 
building a business. The idea is not incremental growth. The idea is quantum leaps. So much more fun. When I sold my business, that was a quantum leap. That's like, how do you get from a revenue of a million dollars to having a multi-million dollar payday? That's a quantum leap, a massive quantum leap. A quantum leap was how do I get from $135,000 in debt to break even in three months? That's a quantum leap. Because most people would say, well, I have $135,000 in debt. You know, this is going to be 10-year fixed loans. I'm going to have to make an extra $1,000 a month. So in order to make an extra $1,000 a month, I'm going to have to sell four more things like that at $2,000. You know, so you calculate. That's not how entrepreneurship really works. So if your listeners are in this, well, 10% this year, maybe I'll stretch it to 12% next year. Just stop it. Just stop it. That's not what we do. We are, we are looking in the future of our vision and then we reverse engineer the vision to the best of our abilities. But you don't have the answers of what it takes to have a quantum leap or to stretch yourself beyond what you're capable of because it's outside of your thought process. But if I say, is the thought to make a million dollars any more difficult than the thought to make $5 million, what would you say? Yes, $5 million is more difficult than a million. But why? It's the same thought. It's a bigger number, which is probably what you had mentioned earlier, the middle class thinking, the way that you're taught, how you grow up, keep safe, get A's. Yeah. It's undoing a lot of that learning. Right. So if I say, I'm going to buy a Prius, I'm going to buy a Bentley. Why is the thought that I'm going to buy a Bentley any more difficult than the thought I'm going to buy a Prius? I'm going to buy a car. More zeros. Right. But that is a limitation that entrepreneurs often have, that they believe that entrepreneurship is about being realistic. Entrepreneurship has nothing to do with being realistic. Entrepreneurship is insane by its definition. <laughs> <laughs> so how do entrepreneurs ditch the realistic thinking? You have to overcome your mindset barriers and you have to be very aware of that. So I do a lot of mindset work. I mean, daily. So I listen to a podcast about mindset. I constantly remind myself that my mother's conservative viewpoints of the world are not my own. And that what my brother, father, relative achieved or didn't achieve has nothing to do with what I can achieve. I look at consciously around focusing on people that I admire and wanting to achieve that versus looking at who's around me who's trying to keep me where I'm at. Because I think the biggest fear is if I'm the biggest earner in my family, and hands down I am, nobody sold a business to Bill Gates in my family. So I'm going to be up against being more than they are. And because I am more in relationship to them, it makes them feel bad. So their job is not to empower me. Their job is to take me down because then they don't feel so bad about what they didn't do. Because if I did it and I'm from the same family, then why did they not do it? That doesn't make them feel good. You're leading somewhere that is really important for a lot of our listeners. It's that difference between fear of success and fear of failure. 
And fear of failure is often a bit more obvious. We, we don't want shame. We don't want to look foolish. But fear of success is an important um, discussion point. And I, the way you just described it makes it clear in my mind on what fear of success actually is. Fear of success is isolation from those uh, you've been always around from your security and safety network, mm -hmm. uh, from people telling you that you think you're oh so much better, which they will tell you. People who brought you here are not going to get you there. I can tell you that right now. There's a very hard line. I was uh, just speaking to my group yesterday, and we were talking about, and there's one particular person, and she says, well, you know, I don't understand why this person has quit. And I said, congratulations. You've just identified who's not going to get you there. Even though it doesn't feel like it. I said, you're now at a crossroads. You have to make a very important decision. Are you going to revert back into that fear-based piece that you worked so hard to overcome? Because that's what's happening right now. The rubber band's snapping back. Something happened, and now you're reverting back mentally to the safety and security thinking. And now you think that the person that left needs to be replaced with somebody who is equally inexpensive. Instead of saying, what am I learning? And how much is it costing me to not have a highly qualified person in that position that's going to cost me way more than I've ever paid for anyone. But that is the growth opportunity. I said, so you see how your mind is completely screwing this up for you because your mind is telling, find somebody who's less than $20 an hour and give them a commission and then hope that you're going to find somebody really amazing. So I took a calculator. We went through the numbers. I said, somebody who's making $19 an hour is making $3,000 a month. We're in Los Angeles. You can't live off $3,000. And then you give them a small percentage. And so that percentage on the item that you're selling, that in order for them to make serious money, they would have to move 40 units of that. And it's a high ticket item. I said, that's just numbers wise, not even possible. I said, so this person that you're hiring, you're hiring already with the intent that the minute they find something better than this, they will leave because there's nowhere to go. That's the challenge as a business owner. This is the realistic thinking about, well, if I declare that I want to get to $2 million, are the people that got me to 500000 the right people that are going to get me to $2 million? And they might not be. You mentioned rubber band thinking. And that gets my mind turning. Sometimes clients will share with me, I had my best year ever last year, but they have this fear that they can't do it again. Is that rubber band thinking where they stretch really big to grow, they hit this awesome goal, and then they get a, a reversal or a client says no in January, and now all of a sudden they're shrinking back in and going to that safety space? It is rubber band thinking, yeah. So the way I describe it, the original program runs all the time, right? That's your dad, your mom. They put that in before you were seven. We know this from human psychology. So we're running around with all the stuff that everybody else told us. Then we do a lot of self-improvement work, coaches, consultants. We read books. We go like, well, I don't really want that. But under that, that old program runs all the time. The old program is like a USB port that's like plugged in on one side of your head. And that runs all the time. You cannot take it out. It cannot be taken out. It's the original operating system. Now you take a bunch of new ports and you plug them in. You're like... Let me try this one. So that runs for a little while. Then you go, eh, you take it out. The old program immediately takes over. 
Now you take a new USB port and you plug that and you say, maybe that one's better. And then you plug it out after a while. And then that old program runs again. You go like, these programs just don't work for me. Well, I tell you why they don't work for you. Because you take the darn thing out. So change only works if you consistently run the new program every single day until the new program has taken hold so significantly that the old program just kind of runs in the background. You're just aware of it. And the minute, you know, there's a system error, you know exactly what to do. You know what to run. And so on the rubber band idea is, it's exactly the same idea. You stretch it and stretch it and stretch it and stretch it. And then something happens and you take the pressure off. It goes right back to its original state. And usually that original state is not a state you want to be in. It's not the state that's going to lead you to your goals. I heard you say that even as successful as you have been in business, you do work to overcome the mindset barriers. Every day. I listen to podcasts constantly. I mean, I will be honest. I'll sneak in a Dateline or Crime Junkie podcast here and there because sometimes it just gets too much. As much as the idea of being in a learning mode is good, but I very consistently listen to mindset podcasts, very specifically business growth podcasts, just to make sure that my mind is always in this new idea. I've started my own podcast called The Business Growth Architect Show. And I started it because this ties back in your original question, like what is strategy? Is because I think people are so overwhelmed with strategy as a concept, or they think it's a dead, ugly fish and not some fun, amazing thing. I mean, I I get actually really excited about strategies. So I decided that I was going to set up this podcast and every week I'm going to bring a different strategy to business owners just so they can see the sheer amount of different strategies people are using. Because when you use strategy, right, you just go and like, well, I wonder what the strategies are for that. And then let me find the right one that works for me. Mm -hmm. It's really not that challenging. But it does feel overwhelming when you think of, I got to have a business plan and the strategies. It's a very overwhelming concept. So I appreciate how you're simplifying and giving entrepreneurs permission to test and figure out what works and what doesn't. Yes, that is the key. The attachment to the money invested in one strategy and then holding on to that strategy until the ship sinks. Not every strategy is going to work. You're going to have to allocate money to different strategies with the idea like an investor. So a real investor takes 10 projects with a $100,000 a pop, and the investor knows that maybe one, possibly two of his investments are actually going to make it. But those who make it might be Facebook or Twitter or PayPal. Or a photography business that you sell to Bill Gates. Or a photography business sold to Bill Gates. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Tell us more about your first book. What inspired you to write Happy Woman, Happy World? So it was born out of the necessity. I was a single mom. And I was often at the table as the only woman in the room. And often I found that the way men do business is, um, eh, let's just say, not very (laughs) pro-women. 
And then I looked at the women and I see them in cat fights with each other and withholding information and hiding materials and not sharing stuff. And I looked at this and I'm like, what the heck is going on here? So when I sold my business and I was asked to be the senior director of photography, I couldn't believe it. People would wait until I was in the bathroom and then run out for lunch and then say, oh, we didn't know where you were, so we couldn't ask you if you wanted to go with us. I'm like, people still do that? How old are you? It's like middle school. It's like middle school. (laughs) Yeah. And this is still in effect. And so I'm like, i got to write a book here and tell women what's up because this cannot continue like this. And so the premise of the book is the first step to achieve true equality or balance in leadership is that women need to start to take responsibility for what we do and say and behave. This kindergarten behavior is not leadership. This taking everything personal is not leadership. Thinking that 2% of CEO positions are ours and the rest is unavailable and therefore we have to take every woman out that we know and hinder her to get there because we have such low self-esteem, that just needs to stop. Because if I operate from the agenda that 50% of leadership is for women and 50% of leadership is for men, then I don't have to take everybody out. That is my gender, which men don't do. So men love the idea that women are fighting with each other because they cancel each other out. So they don't even have to deal with 50% of the competition. I mean, that's just genius. So men have a self-interest in feeding that, especially in the corporate structure, because it means they don't have to deal with any of that. So I wrote the book because I wanted to give women a clear guideline on how to figure out how do I need to show up to be taken seriously? What are the concepts that really are the equal and balanced concept that there is enough for everybody? How to get along with each other more? How to understand where other women are coming from? How to ask the right question? Because the agenda in the reverse engineering is that women want to advance in their careers. And so a lot of the work that I do today, which is also strategic, is sharing with women a lot of my backdoor strategies on how to overcome some of this nonsense men say to women, where they come up with a completely unrelated question that has nothing to do with you. But if you answer it truthfully, then you're going to look bad. And if you look bad, then you look like an idiot, and then they've just taken you out again. So how to stay in control of a conversation, how to recognize when these curveballs are coming, how to deflect them with humor and grace, and how to get back to being unapologetically you. So that's one part that I talk about in the book a lot. I talk about what women are up against with the paradoxes that we are living in, how we are expected to look younger when we age, how we are expected to have children and pretend like we don't have children, and how we feel bad about that, how the concept of equality is being misused as sameness. We are not the same as men. We're equal to men, but we're not the same. Uh, And then I have a concept called egorhythm in the book, and egorhythm is helping women to figure out where in 
their rhythm in life they are, how to make that a priority, and how to understand that you cannot be perfect at all nine ego rhythms at the same time. You have to set a priority, a main focus, and then you make that the guiding thought because the rhythm changes about every three to four years. But we're certainly going to strive for that perfection. I mean, you wouldn't be a woman if you didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) What recommendations do you have to stop feeling overwhelmed? It's really the discipline of your mindset of saying, what is my most important thing that I'm dealing with today? What is my priority for today? And not allowing these catastrophic thinking processes to kick in because our brain volunteers 100 thoughts to one bad thought. So if I say I'm such a loser, then my brain goes, oh, let me find some examples. Oh, remember when you were in the schoolyard and then they did that? Yeah, you were a loser then. Let me remind you of the other time you were a loser. Oh, oh, you know, now that we're talking losers, do you remember these other 60,000 instances? And so you're sitting there, your mind is bombarding you with loser thoughts. And now you go like, yep, that's true. It's it's no good. I'm going to shut the computer off. I'm going to play Wordle or some other stupid game, I'm not going to do anything. And I'm just going to run away from my life because I'm a loser anyway. You have to have the discipline to stop yourself. You do that with a replacement thought of curiosity. So I always come from the mental mindset of curiosity where I'm going like, isn't that interesting? My brain is volunteering 16,000 loser thoughts. Wow. That is just astonishing. I found out that this is happening. I'm not falling for it, but very interesting that I still do that. What can I do now to get out of that, right? Instead of allowing yourself to just like fall into that self-pity mode of your brain wanting to tell you things because you just had a fearful thought. A huge underlying theme around mindset throughout our conversation today. Uh, Mindset around being able to get out of $135,000 of debt and sell a company to Bill Gates in a multi-million dollar deal, mindset around helping your clients thrive and grow and create clarity around the plans that are important to them, the work you do on a daily basis to keep your mindset strong. That's such a powerful takeaway when I hear successful people in business are still prioritizing working on mindset. So thank you so much for all that you have shared with us here today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. And if our listeners want to learn more about you and the work that you do, where can they find out more about Biete Chalette? Well, you can find me all over social media. Uh, follow me on Instagram, uh, where we share a lot of information. If you are a business owner and you heard something about strategy where you go, I really should do more of that. I invite you to go to airtightavatar.com, which is one of my foundational concepts of uh, the five-star success blueprint, which is how do you figure out who your ideal client is? I'll give that to you for absolutely free. Um, And it's all done for you with checklists. So it's really easy to do. Everything I do has to be super simple. Make sure that you subscribe to this podcast and that you leave an awesome five-star review and a comment for our gracious hostess because she's not getting paid for that. She does this as a love project. 
and uh, uh, reach out, send me an email, uh, which will be in the show notes. And I'd love to hear from you directly. Fantastic. Well, thank you for the promotion and the support. And like you mentioned, we will link all of those in the show notes so our listeners can follow up and can't wait to hear more about your podcast as well. Thank you so much. With that goal achievers, keep celebrating your weekly wins, noting your lessons learned, and identify your priorities for next week so you can consistently pursue progress in the direction of your goals. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you are feeling inspired and want to join the Goal Achievers community, visit my website, kristenberg.com to sign up and get connected. We can also hang out socially on Instagram. Follow me at Meet Kristenberg. Links are in the show notes. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this show. Until next time, Goal Achievers, keep progressing towards your goals and celebrate those weekly wins.